Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we meet the elders, we're going to just hear a few words from the two men who had the original idea for the organization. So now please give a very warm welcome to our chair for the evening, John Snow, and Richard Branson and Peter Gabriel. Thank you. Well, we're not going to occupy these chairs because three of them will be occupied by very special people who've been brought together actually originally by these two men. And Peter, how did it begin? Was it your idea or his idea? Well, I, I came to Richard with a proposal and it sort of evolved uh, from, from there. And uh, What was the proposal? Well, I think there was a, a dream that uh, trust in institutions... Um, was failing in all sorts of areas, and yet there were still individuals uh, who, through extraordinary lives, had the trust and faith of a lot of the people of the world, and uh, that perhaps there was some way of, of uh, getting some sort of organization which might put together some of the wisdom and experience and be able to influence things. Um, and the linchpin was to be... Um, well... I, I, I felt that, um, uh, that, uh, that having a group of people that could uh, deal with conflict resolution issues, um, who, who had uh, high moral authority, um, uh, would have a chance of resolving, resolving these issues. Um, we have organizations like Sandhurst and you know, a lot of military organizations, um, but there, there are very few, few organisations that are out there trying to deal with peace and reconciliation. So you obviously have to get... I mean, I don't know how many world leaders you know. You probably know loads because you fly all over the place and have to get permission. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, it's one thing to have an idea. It's quite another to try and persuade people of presumably large ego and large previous power to get on and join. Well, we both agreed that we had to get Mandela because if, if the idea was that people without political, military, or economic power, but just moral authority, uh, he was the number one target. So I think our discussions began in 99, and, and we actually got to sit down with Mandela in 2001, and it, it then took a few more years. He, he was initially not very convinced. Uh, he said, I'm not sure the world wants a bunch of old-timers getting in the way. But then he remembered when he was negotiating with Hutus and Tutsis and the young generals involved said, we want to negotiate only with you because everyone else seems to have an agenda. 
uh, you only seem to want the, the best outcome for all of us. And at, at that point, we started to get hopeful. And, uh, you know, Richard is, is brilliant at moving those things along. Um, and, and gradually, I think he became convinced. So you, you had Mandela as a yes, but there are 10 of them. So, and and you've got to get 10 people who fancied working together. Yeah, I mean, it was... Um, uh, it, it was incredible sort of sitting down with Mandela and Grasha Michelle and obviously it was extremely important that the elders were chosen, um, uh, chosen by them. Um, previous to that, um, uh, President Carter, uh, Desmond Tutu and others had come to Necker Island. There had been a lot of people in this room uh, who'd met on Necker Island um, to brain, brainstorm about um, uh, you know, what kind of elders there should be, um, you know, how one could get it. A, a gender balance, uh, a, a global balance. Um, and so by the time um, Mandela and Grasha Michelle sat down to try to choose, you know, who were the you know, 12 um, most respected people in the world, um, anyway, a lot of groundwork had gone in. But, but rather was, gloriously, one of them was Aung San Suu Kyi, and she's now had to um, recuse herself because she's now in power. I mean, she's elected. So what would you say was the greatest thing these elders have achieved? Would, would you say the independence of South Sudan? Um, I think that there's a, there's a lot of things that have been achieved, um, sometimes as individual elders, sometimes as elders. Um, you know, you had Kenya falling apart. Um, you had um, uh, Archbishop Tutu, um, Grasha Michelle and, and uh, Kofi Annan playing a, a big role in, in making sure that uh, a coalition government got formed. Uh, and anyway, you'll, you'll be talking to them, but there's been an, an awful lot of things they've been doing. Uh, well, I'd just say looking forward, I think there's extraordinary opportunities. And the first time that uh, with technology and communications revolution, you know, you're just beginning to see in the Middle East the impact of, of uh, digital phones uh, un universally spread around. And in a sense, you can imagine a world where anything bad that happens is mapped you know, organizations like Oshahidi doing that with uh, storytelling so you can zoom in and hear in hmm. people's voices with big global campaigns built up, people like Avaz doing that, and then uh, high-level interventions. And this is where the elders could play. So, you know, I'm passionate that the possibilities of the technological revolution, when allied to this, uh, could achieve a lot more. And it may be just incremental, but if they just stop one war, then that would be... Uh, that would be absolutely fantastic. Well, look, uh, I know that they wouldn't even be here without you and a group of people who actually fund them. Because they've, exactly. they've got to move from A to B and B and B and B and A and all the rest of it. Uh, so thank you very much for that. Um, <laughs> folks, and to all those folks, folks a big here, hand for Richard Branson and Peter Gabriel. Thank you very much. So let's hear now from the elders themselves, President Carter, Archbishop Tutu, and former President Mary Robinson, all three coming on.
So we've heard how it, how it began, but, you know, it's all very well sort of lining up some incredibly, you know, experienced people, but you've all got, in the nicest possible way, big egos. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> and um, uh, you've got to work together. And, uh, you know, um, Archbishop, former president, former president, how, how, how do you work together? These are fantastic people, actually, uh, that you have former heads of state uh, dancing attendance and listening to a mere archbishop. I mean, that's fantastic. The, the most unknown <laughs> oh, archbishop in, these, in the world. No, no, but I mean, they really are uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, yeah, the alchemy has been good, mm. uh, you know, but we, we had to learn to fit, uh, to, you know, know, know that I'm very strict about time. Ah, that's good to know, because people say you go on a bit sometimes. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to be nice to me. He's also quite bossy, I have to say. Quite bossy. In fact, he enjoys bossing people. It comes with the cloth. Yes. Yeah. But I, I think it's true that when we, when we started, we were more aware of what we had done and, you know, what we hoped to do as individuals. And then I think very quickly and... Um, with a lot of help and guidance from our chair, we began to see that as elders together, yeah. we could do so much more. And I think it helps. I mean, I, I, I think it helps that we have a moment of silence at the beginning of each of our meetings. So we're not a think tank in the, in the traditional sense. A secular sense. moment. Um, it can be a secular or a spiritual moment. It's obviously a spiritual moment when it ends with Arch. You know, he always ends it um, in prayer. But the moment can be shared as, as, as a moment. But it's... It, it, it's, 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 even on teleconferences, we go silent, which I think you shouldn't do on a teleconference, but we do at the beginning of it. <laughs> How often does somebody say they don't want to see you? Oh, um, um, uh, politicians? Uh, political leaders? Yeah. Uh, who's, who's turned you down? Ha, ha, hardly ever. Really? Imagine, imagine uh, Jimmy Carter picking up the phone and saying to a head of state, uh, we would like to meet you. No. no. <laughs> Hardly ever. I mean, I think... Uh, right. and, and people are beginning to be aware that we, we, we are not into twisting arms. Mm. I might obviously promise uh, them heaven. <laughs> <laughs> No, no. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if they don't op- cooperate, then, of course, they will go to the warmer place. place. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, President Carter, it, it, it would be good just to look at, at an example of, of where you have worked as elders. And, and I think Sudan is a... I mean, after all, you, you came of age as elders... Uh, at the time of the beginning of Darfur. Yes. Um, could you just... You've just been in Sudan. You've even been talking to President Bashir, who is somebody to whom neither we, the Brits, nor the Americans will speak to because there's an arrest warrant out for him. Well, our first trip to Sudan with a fairly large group of elders was to Darfur. We went into the desert area. We met with the people who were there who were suffering. We also met with President Bashir and with those involved in causing the suffering. And since then, we've seen uh, votes in southern Sudan and a formation of the newest nation on earth. 
but still there's a very serious threat of war. It's probably one of the most serious threats of international war there is in the world now between South Sudan, a, a nation, and, and North Sudan. So uh, when I, when uh, Dr. Brahimi and I finished uh, witnessing the first presidential election in Egypt, we went to Sudan and we met with al-Bashir. And I was asked also to go by my own country's government who refuses to meet with al-Bashir because he's been indicted by the International Criminal Court. And so we, we, following that, I called President Salva Kiir in the South to tell him that I wasn't discriminating against him. And now, immediately after this meeting, a group of elders are going to go to the southern part of Sudan to meet with President Salva Kiir, and I will probably call al-Bashir to say we're not ignoring you because we couldn't go to both places at once. So we're trying to prevent a war from taking place there and still working with the United Nations, with the United States, and, and with the African Union and the Arab League to try to keep a walk. What, what do you think you were able to, to extract from President Bashir in terms of an understanding that there wouldn't be? Well, war? one of the key places in, in Sudan is Abyei. Abyei is a tiny part of, of a, right on the border that's this in dispute. Oil. That's Central. where a major part of the oil is. So I gave uh, President Bashir two or three requests. I think there were five or six, as a matter of fact. And, and one of my requests was that he withdraw his troops from Abye, which the South Sudan had already done. And while uh, Lakhdar Brahimi and I were sitting there, he said, I will do that. And he did. So that's just one tiny step toward a possibility of peace. But I don't think that if it had not been for the elders... So there's a demilitarized zone which wouldn't exist were it not for your intervention. Well, I wouldn't give it, uh, because a lot of people are working on it. But, sure. but the point is, we requested that, and he agreed, and, and we were able to announce it to the press immediately afterwards. But where which, do you try to be modest? <laughs> which, I, which I don't always do. And, uh, well, uh, yeah. we're going to come back to Africa, because there's a lot to talk about, not least the appalling bloodshed between uh, Islamists and Christians, which is occurring in both Kenya and yes. more particularly in Nigeria. But we'll come back to that later. Uh, I wanted to move to a different part of the world because we're right on the heels of a presidential election in Mexico. Yes. And one of the distinguishing factors about this particular election is that the man who's won it is absolutely implacably opposed to the war on drugs. Uh, and he's not alone. Um, where are we with drugs and the elders? I mean, where, where, do you have a collective view on... <laughs> no. I'll rephrase that. <laughs> I'll rephrase that. Um, do, you, do you have a view on the decriminalisation of drugs? We haven't um, addressed it collectively as elders, but one of our group, um, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, the former president of Brazil, has been leading um, a very important initiative on this issue in Latin America, but actually globally. And I, I was with him in Rio, and apart from the issues of sustainability we were talking about, you know, young people were coming up and meeting him. And he's a hero in that whole region because of the work he's been doing in that area. And it has been discussed informally. We haven't taken a position on it, but I know that President Carter took a very early position on yeah. that issue. Well, we've all been trying to help President Cardoso explain the issues involved in the decriminalization of marijuana, for instance. And uh, it just happens that when I was president of the United States a little more than 30 years ago, I called for the decriminalization of marijuana. 
Uh, not the legalization. That must have won you a lot more friends than well, you had to begin with. As a matter of fact, it was not an unpopular issue because then we were talking about treatment of drug addicts and doing away with the drug on the consumer end. But, but since then, there's been a massive move toward concentrating almost exclusively on doing away with the suppliers, with helicopters, with bombs, with, with uh, military action and so forth. And I think what President Cardoso says, with which I agree, is that we need to stop putting young people in prison that have a small amount of marijuana and let them be treated if they're addicts and, and concentrate on the treatment and the consumers instead of just concentrating on people in the South Hemisphere who produce uh, drugs, particularly marijuana. But, and I think that uh, this issue in Mexico has been emphasized by the, by the incumbent president now who sent massive numbers of troops into Mexico, which has caused... I think so far um, over 12,000 deaths. Of the three of you, you are the one that lives in the south. What's your perspective looking north at the consumer? Although you have consumers in South Africa too, as you've already illustrated. I'm thinking of the contrast between uh, people who get locked up for uh, perhaps peddling a bit of marijuana mm. or uh, being caught with it in their possession and a banker that's been, um, well, named for... Um, uh, lying or deceit or whatever else that they get up to. They don't go to jail, but the, but the criminalization yes. of drugs ensures that some of the most vulnerable people end up in the neck. Yes, I, I think we... Ours is a thoroughly unequal world. And it, it, it seems so obvious that uh, instability is going to be a consequence of that. I mean, this is a particular example, but I mean, you can show it in so many different areas. I mean, when you, when you, you get a, uh, Occupy Wall Street um, and, and all of the demonstrations that we've had in developed countries, people are saying this is unconscionable uh, and, and it is something that is not sustainable. I mean, that we are going to have to begin looking at trying to make our societies a great deal more egalitarian. One of the things that we, we were discussing this particular issue when one of us, Matija uh, Tisari, uh, former president of uh, Finland, said one of the reasons why you have had less turmoil in, in the Nordic countries is that they are actually, or they've always been, a great deal more egalitarian. Uh, that you walk in the streets and you don't see poor people. Uh, President Carter had a, a crack drip uh, and, 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 and it got a little painful even for him. And he went to the hospital. Uh, after the treatment, he, he, he was producing his uh, card, and they said, not in Norway, hmm. <laughs> you know. Uh, and for nothing. Now, amid the absence of Ms. Brintland, mm. I decided to wear green socks, not, not in honour of Ireland, <laughs> uh, and a green tie, in honour of Rio Plus 20, mm. which you were present at. <laughs> now, the, the interesting thing uh, I'd like to suggest to you is that the media and even the political classes seem to have lost faith with the Rio process, with Kyoto, mm. with mm. the whole thing. I mean, I, I again was at Copenhagen mm. when that conference collapsed yeah. and mm. it, it 
detonated hmm. the media's interest. Yeah. They absolutely hmm. said, well, that's it. Hmm. We got this far hmm. and it all fell apart. Yeah. What was the feeling in Rio? What happened was, I think, a sort of fear of a repeat of Copenhagen for exactly the reason you said. So the Brazilians put a great deal of pressure on to have a weak agreement and to have it before the heads of state and government came and even before many of the ministers came. So you had had a, a weak agreement wrapped up with um, some commitment, importantly, to sustainable development goals and a commitment to a high-level political forum, um, you know, a process for that, but without being clear. But it uh, went backwards on things like reproductive rights, backwards on Cairo, the Cairo conference and the Beijing conference, and it was full of you know, aspirational language, but not really commitments. But what happened was um, all the... Uh, those who had come with hopes that um, there would be a kind of sense of a generational moment in Rio, like Rio, plus 20, uh, Rio 20 years ago, that there would be a change of direction which the world needs on sustainable development. And they were so uh, outraged at this weak agreement before the leaders came, and the leaders didn't reopen it, they just made speeches, they did nothing, um, that there was a sort of energy of saying, we can't leave it to these political leaders. They don't seem to get it. And from indigenous to NGOs to business to philanthropy to um, the, the many, many um, uh, public-private partnerships and broad um, partnerships that were being forged, there was a sort of sense that maybe we need a coalition of the willing to change the whole debate on energy, on climate, and on the future of the world the future of the earth itself. And that very broad consensus kind of energised people. So even though they were furious with the political leaders, they weren't, dis they weren't sort of down and without energy. They were sort of more energised. And I think that that is the mood that has come out of Rio. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Could I then pick up, then, on the role of religion? And it seems to me that we're living in an age of political religion and also of religious religion. And that in Nigeria, you could say that there's been a collision between political religion and, and uh, observance. And I heard on the BBC radio they had a, a transmission from a Nigerian church. And the pastor admitted that his, he, this was in the town of Jos, 
is right in the, yeah. at the border between uh, Muslim mm. and Christian. And he said, yes, my congregation is scanty. And that was because they fear bombs. Yes, Where I, are you with, with what's happening in Africa? Yes, I, I mean, one, one is obviously very deeply distressed. But remember, I mean, you know, that it isn't, it isn't these different religions. No. You know, it's the, not the different faiths. That's why I made a distinction between political yeah. religion, yeah. which I would describe as very present, very present in the United States. We saw them roar in tooth and claw outside the Supreme Court trying to overturn uh, Obama's health care bill, and we see political Islam uh, trying to kill off yeah. Christian yeah. Uh, religion in, in Nigeria. Yeah, but I mean, not too far away. I mean, Ireland, Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. I mean, it was people claim to belong to the same faith using, mm -hmm. using that as a reason for clobbering others. And, and I mean, we Christians particularly ought to be a great deal more modest. But again, that was political religion, you know, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, but I mean, what you want to say is don't because certain Muslims behave in a particular way then say, therefore... Islam is. Oh, no, because in Joss, for example, they visited the local mosque and talked to the mullah, who was yeah. absolutely horrified at what was going on yeah. but had no power to influence it. Yes, I mean, I hope... We, we had... We, Kofi, just before he, he stepped down, uh, called a group um, of about 30 people, uh, and it was called the Alliance of Civilizations, with people of different faiths and from different countries and, and gender. Uh, and amazingly, this disparate group produced a unanimous report. Uh, and summing it up, Kofi said, it isn't the faiths that are the problem. It is the faithful. <laughs> and faithful. I mean, we've had apartheid not enforced on us by pagans, but Christians, you know, and, and we've, we've, we've got to realize that, I mean, when people are on a kind of binge, they are going to use anything to try to justify. And well, I mean, what could you, as an elder, do in Nigeria? Could you go to a place like Joss and say, what? You know, I mean, they'd come and kill you. Uh, well, I, I mean, we've been to places uh, like that, I mean, and, and tried to say to people, uh, you know, peace is better than war. Uh, it is much better for you if you cooperate rather than clobber each other. We did it in, in Northern Ireland uh, as well. I mean, and uh, yeah. You, I, I often say I'm so glad I'm not God. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, just imagine what God must feel like. I mean, we, we, each one of them says, I'm doing God's work. And, and, and they go off on a binge to clobber others in the name of religion. 
and you've got to try to persuade them that it's not going to work that way. I've just remembered that it's your 67th wedding anniversary. 57. Do you think God's forgiven no, you being away? No, 50. 57th. 57th. <laughs> Thank you. And, and, and your wife, Leah, is somewhere on the road between Soweto and, uh, and, and somewhere. That's the, that's the best way of celebrating a, a, a wedding anniversary. What, to be three and a half thousand miles? No, it's so. awful. <laughs> yes, I'm, 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 I'm sorry not to be with her, but she, she was very generous. And, and we're only four days away from your 61st... 66. 66th wedding anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I don't know that you have any comment on political religion in, in America um, and, and whether there's any affinity with political religion anywhere else, but, I mean, what's so interesting is that you were probably one of the most religious presidents there's been and one of the most devout uh, and yet, uh, nobody could say that you were in remotely a political religionist. Well, that's true. I, I have always believed, as my father taught me, to separate church and state. But I saw it meld together during the subsequent administrations. And now it plays a major role in, in almost every debate in America. You see the particular religions injected into it. And to go back just one step, and very briefly, you know, the... First of the elders' uh, concern was how the major religions, including Christianity and Islam, are the origin of the persecution or, uh, or derogation of women's rights. Hmm. Uh, the Catholic Church won't let a woman be a priest. And the Southern Baptist Convention, from which I withdrew, uh, won't let a woman even teach boys in the seminaries, nor serve as a deacon or, or pastor and so forth. And the Islamic faith, as you know, also in some countries discriminates against women. In, that, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, a, a woman can't drive an automobile. And I think when, when the rest of the world, maybe in a, a potentially abusive husband, sees that the church ordains this inferiority of women, that justifies abuse of women. So I think, generically speaking, the great religions can do more than anything else if they would correct their ways to let women be completely equal in the eyes of God. And then, they, they, therefore, and subsequently, they can be equal in the eyes of men. But I think what a number of us found very worrying in Rio, including Gru and myself, was the fact that in a discussion about sustainable development, the initial text had rightly emphasis on the importance of reproductive health and rights and rights was removed, which um, was backsliding on both the Cairo conference in 1994 and the Beijing um, conference on Could women. you detect the origin of the removal? Yes, there were a few countries, Costa Rica. Um, the European Union didn't come out very strongly, particularly because of Malta. Um, nobody understood... Malta wagged Europe's tail? Malta wagged Europe's tail on, on this issue. And I think there were probably a few other countries that weren't pushing it either. But the, the point really is that um, for women's groups who've been following this, and language matters very much in this context, it was a step back. Rio was a step back 
on the World Conference against women, uh, uh, for Women in, in Beijing. Um, I, before we open it up to the audience, which we're going to do momentarily, as I think would be said in, in your country, um, <laughs> before we open it up momentarily to the audience, um, I, I want to come to, to one last um, and, and, and I would have thought very present issue, and that is the technolo technology is technology and war, and the extent to which the human is being removed from the battlefield to originate assassination and killing from a very distant place on a computer screen. Is there anything morally, do you think, different between presence on the battlefield and pushing a button um, 5,000 miles away in the sanctity of, of some northern state? Morally. Not for me. It's all war. Yes. I mean, I, I, I think... Uh, to use technology in the fashion that they do. Uh, and, Drones and, don't worry you. I'm absolutely appalled, you know, uh, that, that uh, we, 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 we're so casual. You know, when you think, I mean, that they, they, they can pinpoint and, and assassinate someone. And sometimes it's innocent children, women, old people who become the victims of this. And, and it, I mean, sort of clinically, for me, it's actually worse. I mean, it makes it, makes it worse that we can, we can use an extraordinary gift that God has given us of intelligence for this when we, we could be wanting to use it for things like helping to produce food, helping people to have clean water. Or using the same technology to bombard a cancerous cell. Absolutely. Mm. President Carter. Well, I think it, when you depersonalize war on uh, one side of the battle, for instance, if a, a major country can destroy another region from 30,000 feet uh, bombing where there's no uh, involvement personally of the nation itself or even the pilot other than releasing the bombs with no danger to himself, then the only people who suffer are the ones who are the recipients of the attack. <clears throat> and the same thing happens when you, by remote control, kill people uh, with, a, uh, with a drone. So I think that uh, the major deterrent to war in the past has been that both sides suffer. Mm. <clears throat> so that if somebody's going to attack others, they realize I might be involved myself. I might have my own child killed. And when, when you move that deterrent, you, you not only depersonalize the combat and remove a deterrent to it, but, but you also reduce the recipients of the attack to subhumanity uh, as though they are not equal to you in the eyes of God, in the eyes of human beings, in the eyes of the international community. So I think that it's a very serious uh, step that we have taken from massive aerial bombing all the way through to uh, the drone attack. As you're the only American president in the last 50 years not to have fired a shot in anger, in the course of his presidency, or not had his country fire a short shot of anger, it's no good my asking you whether as president you would have ever used a drone. 
that's a hard thing to answer, but my, my external opinion of what I would have done is <laughs> that I would not. I would not. But your internal opinion is? Well, you know, I, I don't know what circumstances would have happened when I was president. That's hard to say. But, uh, but we worship the Prince of Peace. And I think one of the major elements of uh, human life should be to do everything you can to promote peace and deter war. So I think yeah. human rights and peace cover the basic thrust of what the elders are about. And I don't think in any of our discussions in the last five years, we have ever departed from that basic principle that the elders, no matter what else happens, in every way we can, sometimes very minimal ways, sometimes a maximum influence, we're going to promote peace and we're going to promote human rights. Of course, that is a fundamental advantage when you land at, uh, uh, in, in Sudan, uh, in Khartoum. Yes. The one thing they can be absolutely certain of is, A, you won't be carrying a Kalashnikov, uh, and B, uh, you won't have access to a nuclear bomb. That's correct. Mm. Or any form of weapon. And you know, the, I think the entire concept of human rights includes... Peace, justice, and so forth. There's no doubt about that. I agree very much with that. In fact, I was very glad that one of the first initiatives of the elders was during the um, 60th anniversary of the Universal Declaration. We had a whole year of encouraging uh, the marking of um, that Universal Declaration with a whole lot of organizations, Amnesty, etc., um, on in uh, Every Human Has Rights. But the point that you triggered in my mind is I remember as High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, I was very concerned about the refugees from Kosovo. <laughs> And with a number of my colleagues, I was visiting. And then I went into Serbia. I didn't meet Milosevic. He refused to meet me. I met the foreign minister. And then we were taken under escort of the Serbian authorities to the town of Niš because the mayor of that town had been very much a human rights person. We wanted to get more information from him. And um, we were building a case for the International Criminal Court. And we were stopped because there was bombing ahead of us. And I thought, oh, we'll have to go all the way back to Belgrade now. And they said, no, no, come quickly. And we came to a poor housing estate on the outskirts of Niche where there had been bombing by NATO. And there were cluster bombs on all kinds of levels that children would have been playing. And, and there were, a few people were injured. I don't think anybody was killed. And I reported on that and, and criticized NATO. And I got heavily censored. You know, the idea of an official of the United Nations criticizing NATO. And yet... I saw with my yes. own eyes. And, yeah. you know, women, are not, women and children are not collateral damage. I think now with drones and with the technology, as you said, it's, it's more worrying. And it's more worrying in lots of other ways too, invasion of privacy, um, the use of you know, uh, internet. Um, we are actually, as elders, taking it upon ourselves um, to look at um, the internet and, and privacy issues and human rights. And um, we're not going to be the technical experts. But we are going to keep reminding our world that we do have common values of human rights and of commitment to peace. Well, at that point, I, we're going to throw up some light uh, because there are some microphones up in the gods, uh, up here and down here somewhere. Tell us who you are and off we go. Uh, good evening. Um, I'm very pleased to be here and want to say hello to Mary Robinson, um, who I used to work for briefly. Um, hearing you speak about a range of issues... I'm curious if, um, if, as the elders, you see common barriers to progress among the different issues, whether it be peace, whether it be sustainable development. Um, for example, I heard Joe Stiglitz the other night talking about how our cognitive frameworks aren't changing fast enough to help us address these issues. So I wanted to ask your opinions. Thank you. Mary, she's yours. You start. 
they, they call uh, it. I didn't oh. arrange this. <laughs> 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 um, uh, I think what, what, what the question was whether there are common threads of common barriers in the various issues that we address, and whether, yeah. you know, and in a way, um, I think um, we're in a period of change that we don't fully appreciate. Um, political change, the power in our world is, is, is changing with the emerging economies and the, and, 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 and the uh, shifts that are taking place. Um, we have this urgent need to safeguard our world by having sustainable development and by caring enough about the uh, global warming that could destroy um, our whole um, um, ecosystem of the world. Um, we have a financial system that's broken and is causing huge um, issues of divisiveness. And we certainly don't have the leadership at the moment on those at the political level. In fact, we, we, we seem to have less leadership. It's almost, I think it's, issues have become very complicated. Mm-hmm. And political leaders are only looking six months ahead or four or five years ahead. And many of the things we need to talk about are intergenerational. We need... Um, the kind of reform, the more egalitarian society. Um, that, you know, to me is essential. And really addressing poverty. And, 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 I think um, it would be right to say that there's nobody who comes from any country assembled in this room who wouldn't agree with that. Hmm. I mean, that hmm. besets hmm. all of us hmm. in every developed country. Hmm. I'm less aware hmm. of the South, but hmm. that rings real, real bells. Let, let's take as many questions <clears throat> as we can in the tie at the top there. Uh, Nick Kenyon. It's Sir Nicholas um, Kenyon who runs this place. Here, here we are in an art centre. In terms of what you were saying about the search for peace, do you see a role for the arts in releasing creativity and actually helping conflict resolution? And the last one up here. I had a question for President Carter, which was, did you find you had more impact and power when you were in presidency or now as part of the elders, and why? <laughs> 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 it's such a good question we'll get it out now <laughs> well, did you have more impact in power as a president or now I really had more impact and power as president uh, although it was not nearly as enjoyable <laughs> uh, and the, the best part of my life has been the last 30 years particularly since I've been involved with the elders because I've worked with other people and we are more directly involved with individual people who are suffering in the world. But I, I would never have been able to bring about a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt as an elder. But I could use the full power and political influence of my own country to help the t- to force the two leaders to come together. And that treaty has lasted now for almost 35 years. So there are a few things I could have done uh, as president, like normalized relations with China that I couldn't do as president. But I think that... Uh, That's a very good question, and uh, as far as power is concerned, uh, present would be more effective. As far as influence is concerned, I think the collective elders can be more of an influence for peace and human rights than I could be as president. Can you see a role um, for the arts in conflict resolution? Can you see them playing a, a role that in some way opens opportunities? Speaking uh, from my own experience uh, at home, I mean, when we were struggling against apartheid, oh, absolutely, certainly, I mean, the the, the arts were were quite critical. Uh, I mean, you had people who 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 could who could criticise uh, the apartheid system quite transiently. Uh, 
but because they were on the stage and, and the South African government was trying to make out that they were Western, um, that kind of criticism was something that could happen. And, and I mean, we were particularly um, energized by song hmm. Um, hmm. as well. I mean, you know, that uh, singing uh, when you were hurting, uh, say at funerals, um, and, 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 and when you were celebrating. Hmm. Uh, and I, I think, I mean, yeah. Uh, you what, have... about, what about um, Baron Boehm's uh, Palestinian-Israeli yes, orchestra? Mm, absolutely. The East-West Levant. Mm, or it's yeah. mm. Probably had it playing here, mm. Nick, without a doubt. The other thing would be when you stop people going to places that are troublesome. By what means? Did, did you... <laughs> I, I, I'm speaking English. Are you talking about sporting, sporting fixtures? Yes. Uh, no, no. Sporting um, fixtures. No, 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 okay. no, 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 no. No. Boycotts. Boycotts, yes. Yes, I mean, it's, it's quite important when you have people who are celebrities in, in the arts saying, no, we're not going to go to South Africa. We're not going to go over there. And that's... that's it seems a negative, but it isn't. I mean, people feel those things often more sharply. Ma'am. Um, as the women's rights advocate for Human Rights Watch, I definitely need your advice. Um, what do we do when an issue that we know is crucial to women's rights, to women's dignity, to the future of the planet, such as reproductive health, is so stuck that we cannot move forward? How do you think we can push such an issue forward? What are some of the foolproof methods um, that you know exist that we can use for this kind of issue? Uh, I think it's important that this issue is seen as mainstream to development. Um, and that's a message that we tried to uh, put across both Gru Brundtland and myself very strongly in Rio. I also happen to chair a global leaders council on reproductive health which includes um, uh, um, Fernando Enrico Cardozo and also Ellen johnson Sirleaf, the president of Liberia and Joyce Banda, the, the president of Malawi and a number of others um, who um, see the, the need to to sort of champion it visibly and, and um, with conviction in order that it isn't a taboo subject or a stigmatized subject. But um, the most important thing, I think, is to keep affirming the central role of sexual and reproductive health um, in, for girls, for women, and that also it's, it's relevant to an issue that now comes up more and more. I have a foundation on climate justice. I talk a lot about it, and I get the question, what about population control? And I have to answer as gently as I can and say that's an important issue but the wrong question. It's well, not what, is what about population control. We know what to do and it doesn't come from the outside as a kind of control. It's educating of girls and women, having health systems that bring down maternal and child deaths and having reproductive health as part of the um, education of girls and women and of men and boys for that matter. I wanted to talk about women. You want to talk about women. <laughs> Uh, it all it seems a little facetious, but it isn't. I am actually quite serious. Uh, when I, 
I mean, my own particular theory is most women would be people who bring to life and nurture and that when they are truly feminine they are, they are hardly likely to be warmongers that a, a woman who's carried a, a baby for nine months in a womb is not likely to want to see the child being cannon fodder and quite seriously, I have suggested that we did in fact want a revolution that women ought to be saying to us men, we, we have allowed you. The world is in a mess. Just get out of the way. And, <laughs> Uh, uh, unfortunately, people think, I mean, that one is not being, being serious. But when you think, how did peace come in Liberia? Peace came because women of the different faiths came together and said, we are going to pray the devil back to hell. Mm-hmm. And it was largely because of the role that women played, that uh, peace came. I'm going to shut up. No, I, it's a good thought to leave ringing in our ears. I'm going the to Liberian leave it. experience yes, is yes, a good thing to yes. leave in our ears for this moment. Yes, I'm I going to, to move I'm, you, I want I'm, to move I'm, you on I'm to sure. one more thing. Yes, all right. And that is yes. the very good question about Sri Lanka hmm. and human rights and how uh, people are allowed to say, well, it's just a, hmm. a Western sort of... Uh, In fairness, um, you know, the Human Rights Council did pass that important resolution about Sri Lanka and the elders were very strongly um, supportive and we had an op-ed about it and it it was very important. Now we we have to follow up on that and um, the um, Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights must, um, you know, address the way in which Sri Lanka responds to that resolution and so there is a... um, it's not the strongest process, but there is a process there, um, which is important. There's also the Universal Periodic Review, which Sri Lanka will come um, before the Council for um, this year. And um, I think it's, it, it's on the record, and it has been a very important statement by the Human Rights Council that um, uh, you know, is at least saying um, Sri Lanka must have the, must implement their own report um, and must go further and must, must have uh, bring to, uh, prosecute those who have been responsible for the worst um, cases and they have been terrible cases um, of violations of human rights of the civilian population Right, let's take uh, everybody's at the microphone I'll take you two first yeah, Hi, my question would be for President Carter um, you have um, underlined the sacrosanctity of uh, the elections and how we should in fact in, in, in the case of Egypt and how we should, in fact, not only acknowledge it, but, but support it, very rightfully. And my question is, how would you reconcile this concept, very important pillar uh, concept, with the results in Aceh, which you, I'm sure you're familiar, is this region in Indonesia, 
uh, where through democratically elected uh, government, and one that has been actually re-elected a couple of months ago, uh, Sharia has been implemented and very forcefully applied. That was in Niger, did you say? Ajay. In? In Indonesia. Indonesia. Indonesia, sorry. In Aceh. In Aceh, yeah. Worth for a journalist to know this fact. Thank you. No, sorry. no, I'm sorry. I couldn't hear through the echo. Ah, sorry. Thanks very much. Uh, and the next question. Thanks. I've had the opportunity to see the elders in action in Rio, in Copenhagen, in many places, and I'd like to thank them for the inspiration they bring to grassroots activists and younger people. However, I want to raise a somewhat controversial issue. Do you think that it's important now for the elders to add the voice to attacking and interrogating the quality of democracy that we actually have in the world? Because very many of the countries that claim to be promoters of democracy are actually far too often the underminers of democracy. Uh, the United States today, I would say, is the best democracy money can buy. And the example that John... <laughs> The example that Jon Snow gave about the bankers here in the UK who can engage in billions of dollars of theft and can walk away with bonuses when people, to use Jimmy Carter's example, with a joint in their pocket, have to spend time in prison. So should the elders moving forward not begin to actually begin to add some qualitative discussion to what is democracy in the current world that we live in? Thank you. Excellent question. Thank you very much. You five up there. Hi. Um, we've heard a lot about women's rights, which is obviously a big issue, but nothing about queer rights. And I was wondering, with such a diverse group of elders, including such religious people, whether LGBTQ plus groups were on your agenda. Gay Did you say gay rights? Gay rights. Yes. Thank you very much. Yep. Uh, and... A question for Archbishop uh, Joseph Duncan, Tutu Foundation. Um, yeah, a question about Ubuntu. Uh, you know, I've, I've personally been immensely inspired by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the idea of you know, one family and you know, that everybody's, everybody else is brother and sister. Uh, but you know, the culture that I find myself living in just seems to be so you know, pushing me and everybody else towards... Uh, you know, Punitive, uh, you know, uh, punishing people and splitting people up and putting people into boxes, and you know, working, wanting to promote, you know, the ideas of Ubuntu or community togetherness. It's like, where do we start with culture? You know, where does the pressure need to be, uh, and what can what can we do as you know, individual citizens? You know, really to really shift this. What's it going to take? Excellent. And and the final one up that. I run a project called Think at Boat where we ask people um, from all backgrounds what the future they choose is for the world and how we can create it. I was wondering what um, an act is from each of you of something that we can do as individuals to create the world that we've been talking about tonight. Very good. Do you think it's time that the elders began to interrogate the quality of democracy? Uh, you, you, you've appreciated democracy winning in, in Egypt but our questioner suggested there's a lot of people say they're running a wonderfully democratic situation. Uh, and as he put it, the United States has the best democracy money can buy. Uh, should the elders be looking at the quality of uh, democracy and uh, interrogating it a little, given that it, it is such a yardstick by which you make judgments? Well, he also mentioned Indonesia. Uh, 
I was there personally when Indonesia had their first democratic election in almost 50 years, following two uh, dictators, and, and it, was a, it was an honest and fair election. And then we went back five years later for another honest and fair election where the people's voices were heard. And now they have a democracy there that I think is going to be stable. And within that democracy in Aceh and other places, there are problems uh, still existing. But I think that uh, their democracy is good. And uh, I think in Egypt, although we may not like the outcome of the election, uh, this was the expression of the majority of people who went to the polls and voted. And I, and I think that uh, we certainly can look at the quality of, uh, of a democracy. In the United States, with a stupid decision recently made by the Supreme Court that corporations can give unlimited amounts of money, I think it has subverted the basic integrity of our electoral system in America. And, uh, and I think if, you just, if you distill that statement, that one sentence, it's probably one of the most powerful statements a former United States president has ever made. That is, a, to, to call the Supreme Court decision stupid, it, it, it was stupid indeed, but, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. but to hear it from you is, is well, quite... Maybe, quite other, maybe other people could think of a better way to describe it, but that, that's my best word that I can think of. <laughs> and, and I... Because it has subverted the American system and it's made uh, that enormous amount of money coming in be spent almost entirely on negative advertising where to win an election now, you destroy the reputation and integrity of your opponent. And that negative attitude has divided our people into two opposing and irreconcilable positions in the Congress and other places. So I think, I think basically democracy is, is by far the best system of government because not only if you make a mistake at the beginning, like they may have made in Egypt or we may have made in the United States, it's self-corrective ultimately. If the people can, can have a, a right to say, okay, we've made a mistake, let's correct it in the next election, that's, a, that's the integrity of democracy. So I, I'm, I'm completely convinced that when the people express their will, those who go to the polls and vote and choose a leader, the world ought to recognize that leader chosen by the people as legitimate and ought to cooperate and try to make that leader be successful. Um, do you uh, believe that changing laws can often be more effective than talking to a whole lot of leaders? Um, do you uh, have a message for the next generation? And finally, uh, and you can choose any one of these or perm one of three, message for the next generation, the role of law if I could just answer the other question, what we can all do, and I think Archie have already said this, I, mean, I think we, we do believe as elders that everybody can make a difference and that the world needs people to think in terms of I can make a difference. And it's back to maybe thinking more actively about what, what it is to be a citizen, back to Kumi's question about democracy. What I will take away from um, this, this evening's discussion and what we've heard from the floor is that we need to be thinking more about mm. how we live as good citizens in the 21st century and what we demand of governments. And there shouldn't be double standards, there shouldn't be the corruption of money. You know, we, and, and above all, as you say, um, the, the, hopefully we will get an arms trade treaty at the end of July, at the end of this month, in fact. Um, uh, Oxfam and others are working very hard on that. And that would be the beginning of sanity when it comes to armaments, which are out of control. I missed one uh, question from your domain, from everybody's domain. Gay rights. Yes. Um, well, nobody's been more outspoken of, on gay rights in African countries than you, Arch. 
Yes, I. <laughs> I I'm. I. I mean, at the moment, I am sad that in in our church or our communion, the Anglican communion, at a time when there is so much poverty and conflict and mm. disease, what are we spending time on? <laughs> spending time on. Is is this okay? I mean, is this kosher or halal uh, uh, for for these for this person to love that person? And, and I, as coming from where I come, where I was penalized for something about which I could do nothing, my ethnicity, I couldn't possibly. Keep quiet when people are being persecuted for something about which they can do nothing. Basically, they 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 are um, sexual orientation, and, and I couldn't. I mean, I can't. I can't understand. Just as a matter of justice, how can we want to clobber somebody? Uh, we say, well, racism is. Is evil and, and, and all of that. I think homophobia is too. And your message to the next generation? Well, I, I would hope to imitate or to repeat what Archbishop said a few minutes ago. God knows that the future of the world depends on the young people retaining their idealism and their moral values, their hopes and their dreams. And, and if they don't do it, if they, if they submerge themselves into being affected by the mundane aspects of life, how much can I get at the expense of others and so forth, we won't succeed. But I have confidence, optimism, that in the future we'll see a world of peace and human rights. So that's where you come. But, but how to affect the, the lawmakers, that is a big problem that we have to address. We'll do our share as 10 elders, but the vast majority of people in this audience are the ones that are going to shape the future in my country, in Great Britain, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, all over the world. My friends, uh, we have been in on an intoxicating moment in history. <laughs> Three wonderful minds have been gathered before us, taking our questions and exploring the issues of our day. And they've left us with one message that we should each take out of this room. I can make a difference. And if each of us takes that away, we will leave this room collectively more powerful than we entered it. So I'd like on your behalf to thank President Jimmy Carter, former President Mary Robinson, and Arch Archbishop Desmond Tutu. <laughs> Very well.